We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. If you have a Bible with you, if you take it and open it up to Acts chapter 6, please. Acts chapter 6. Both you here and those of you at home want you to have your Bible there and uh, be engaged. Uh, and the live stream, you cannot put me on 1.5 speed and hurry up and listen to the whole message. You've got to listen to me at the speed that I, I am. So if you want me to talk faster, I can do that and we can get through this message quicker. But if you want me to talk slower so you can pay better attention, I'll be happy to do that as well. Acts chapter 6. The first seven verses we spent uh, two weeks looking at, we saw that there was a problem that arose in the church uh, regarding the distribution of benevolence to uh, the widows who were of the Hellenized uh, culture, Greek-speaking widows in the church. And uh, I just make a couple of extra comments on that uh, tonight just by way of review. Ideally, we want to be forward-thinking enough that we can head off such problems before they become problems. So as you see things starting to happen, you don't wait until there's an outcry and, a, and an injustice that occurs, but you, you know, adjust things as, you know, on the fly as you go. So you kind of want to foresee the evil, so to speak, as Proverbs 22 says in Proverbs 27, kind of looking ahead and saying, okay, that's not the best way for us to go. We're going to redirect and take care of this before we get to the problem state. The leadership in the church suggested a wise solution, which was adopted by the gathered believers. They had a nomination process of sorts and appointed men to handle the task. Seven men in particular were appointed, appointed over the business, and they are named for us in Acts 7, verse number 5. They were probably involved, were quite involved initially in doing the work of getting things organized and getting things rolling, but ultimately, I think they became more overseers of the work, dealing with the uh, more difficult aspects or problem things that came up and stuff like that, but I don't think they had necessarily to carry out all the details, because as we said, there were potentially hundreds of widows that became into the care of the church Uh, after they were removed out of the synagogue for converting to Christianity uh, or their families abandoned them because of that and so on. So all of this uh, kind of set the stage for the church to formalize an office of deacon, and that is taught to us in 1 Timothy chapter 3 where Paul lays out the requirements for elders or pastors and deacons, Okay, just the two offices that he recognizes there. And so, just by way of application, it's important for us as pastors and um, missionaries, we'll say, uh, to recognize issues that are overburdening and keeping us from doing the key ministries of prayer and preaching the Word, and then to hand off those other ministries. So, example, you know, a pastor mowing the grass 
okay, he can mow the grass just as well as anybody else can mow the grass. Uh, I think I might have mowed the grass here at this building once or twice. We got volunteers to do it most of the time, and now we hire uh, it out, and that's uh, nice. Now, I do a lot of grass mowing at my house, but I take that as my responsibility because everybody else has a house has to mow their own grass. I don't get special treatment. I got to either pay for it or do it myself or get some kids to do it. Uh, but anyways, you know, I serve in some ways to be an example and because I have the capability to do so, but I have to be careful about overdoing it since I have literally more important things to do. Not that serving tables is unimportant, but its importance does not match the pastor's gifts and responsibilities that he has before the Lord. So it's important to recognize that and keep, keep uh, attention to it. When this is done... Uh, the Bible says, the word of God spread, verse number seven, then the word of God spread and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. The church was then functioning on all cylinders. There, were, uh, there was no load imbalance. There wasn't an engine miss, you know, one of those things that you've got to get a, a new uh, coil, spark plug, fuel filter, or whatever you have to do to, uh, to get things running properly. Even among the Levitical priests, there was growth in the church. Can you imagine that? It says, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Well, they were making serious inroads. I mean, the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders must have felt like, man, we're really under attack here because they're taking away our people. There were already over 5,000 disciples in chapter 4. There were many thousands of believers at this time. And this set the stage for the initial growth of the church throughout the whole world. Remember, God is seeding the church to begin to multiply across the face of the globe. And that takes a lot of seed to get started, and he wanted it to be a decent and strong start. Among those men who were first selected as deacons, we had Stephen. And verse 8 tells us a little bit about him. Uh, we already know that he was a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, the Bible says in verse number 5. But read verse 8, or follow along as I read rather. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, the Libertinos, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were unable to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council looking steadfastly at him saw his face as the face of an angel. I put uh, the notes on the website for anyone who would like to look at them in the document section as normal. And at the top of that, I put the title and then I put the kind of truth that I drew out of this, and there are probably several you could draw out of here, but one that I drew out was that believers should expect that unbelievers will twist their words and misunderstand what they say. 
because that's what happened here in spades. Let's start here. Stephen was full of faith and power um, in verse 8. Okay. Now, I believe the biblical principle is that you must have faith to have power. You have to have faith to have power. In Matthew 13, 58, Jesus was in Nazareth, but it says he could do no mighty work there because of their unbelief. No faith, no power. Okay? If you're eaten up with anxiety, if you don't trust the Lord is going to provide, if you don't trust the Lord is going to sustain his church, help your family, do whatever, you're not going to have any power because power, true power comes where faith is. Stephen was full of faith and power. In Stephen's case, and at that time, he could do miraculous works, wonders and signs, they're called, in verse number 8, among the people. He was a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. You know, one of the Godhead dwelt richly within him. Now, just know, I said that in a careful way. Everyone who's a true Christian has the Spirit of God dwelling in him. But I said the Spirit of God was dwelling richly in Stephen, because he was full of the Spirit. You know, as I said to somebody else and has been said over the years, it's kind of helpful little phrase, you know, you have all of the Spirit. The question is, does the Spirit have all of you? You know, how much, what, 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 what quadrant of your life are you not handing over to him? What, what, what percentage are you saying, that's mine, you know, mine, mine, mine. God doesn't take to people saying mine. You know why? Because it's his. It belongs to him. He made you. He made everything. Okay? So Stephen was a man who was given over to God. And that can be the case for us too. We, we need to decide that to be the case for ourselves in a sense. Look, I'm going to follow Christ. You know, he who wills to do the will of God will know of the doctrine God, Christ said of whether it's mine or not, whether it's God's or not, whether it's true or not. Now, obviously, Stephen was doing a little bit more than organizing the benevolence program of the church to Greek-speaking Jewish widows. You know, he was using some time on the side to preach the gospel. This would put him on the line of fire of the Jews who didn't want to hear about this new thing that was happening. I was joking with our brother just the other day, Jesus, or yesterday, Jesus said, uh, you know, um, or maybe it was earlier today when we were talking on the phone, Jesus said, you know, they... uh, they always will say the old is better. The old is better. Don't like the new, you know. Um, and they didn't, the Jewish people didn't like the new, the new idea, the new Messiah, the new way, the, the new doctrine, the new changes, because they were steeped and stuck in their ways and couldn't see because they had been blinded to the reality of God's truth. Now, he Stephen here runs into these guys called the synagogue of the freedmen. Synagogue is the the gathering place, the gathering group, if you will, of individuals who were in in synagogues. And perhaps he uh, was in an official debate or hearing in the synagogue of these freedmen, or they heard him teaching and uh, they became upset at what he was saying. And uh, but they couldn't they couldn't respond to it very well because it was new, it was true, it was from God. Um, we see Stephen later on in chapter 7, where we'll get to in a moment, fully informed of Jewish history from the Hebrew Bible. And he used that as a bridge to the new era with a specific view toward rebuking their sin and convicting them of it. 
they couldn't stand hearing him preach about their sinfulness, their rebellion, their hard-heartedness and stiff-neckedness, and so they went about killing him. That's in chapter 7. Now, who were these opponents initially of Stephen? We know in chapter 7 it was the high priest and the council again doing what they did to Jesus. Now they're doing it to Stephen. But initially there were these guys called the synagogue of the freedmen. And evidently there were different types of synagogues. You know, you, you might think, well, all synagogues are the same, like all churches are the same or all Catholic churches are the same. No, they're not. There, there were sects divisions, uh, factions, whatever. They're maybe based on some theological issues. I mean, there were Sadducees and Pharisees, right? They didn't agree with one another. There were the synagogue of the freedmen and the synagogue of the not freedmen, okay? Um, Who were these people? Um, You know, for, for those who spoke Hebrew or Aramaic, the mainline synagogue would work, but for those who spoke Greek, another synagogue might be better. For them, it's it's like today. Sadly, I mean, we have you know like half a dozen Korean churches in Ann Arbor. It's fine. I'm not trying to be too critical, but you know everybody kind of goes to their little their little group, you know, their little ethnicity instead of having a a uh, you know diverse common uh, group to demonstrate what the body of Christ is like. So perhaps the Greek uh, you know, speaking would draw them to a different synagogue. Evidently, this freedman thing was a sect of proselytes or Jews from the countries of Cyrene, Egypt, Cilicia, and Asia. It was likely a synagogue in which Greek was spoken. It could have been initially at least, perhaps still, but initially for sure, comprised of freed slaves. Now, to understand that a little better, you have to understand the times. I mean, in, in Rome, it's said that there were a million slaves. Um, the, the Jews were made slaves by Rome back decades earlier when Rome took over the, the area. Uh, Rome had many, many slaves from areas they conquered, and they made them work for them. Uh, people would go into slavery voluntarily because it was good for them um, economically. You know, there were high-ranking slaves, official, those of officials. There were doctors, lawyers, uh, teachers. It was a much different social phenomena than what we have today. I mean, like today, if we had that sort of thing today, it might look like this. Somebody's having trouble paying their bills. They go bankrupt. No, they don't go bankrupt. They become a slave. Their bills are paid by somebody else, and they pay that person off by their labor over a course of time, maybe a long time, whatever. Maybe they decide, oh, I've got it good with this guy. I'm going to just stay in this condition. But what happened was then you get social castes. You get a caste system. You get the people who never were slaves and the people that are slaves. And the people that were freedmen who were slaves but kind of bought themselves out or uh, you know pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and got out of slavery. So you have different social classifications and I'm sure you can imagine how, you know, people, you know, at the kind of high church might not want to associate with the, you know, the blue-collar riffraff in the, in, the, in the low church, right? That shouldn't be the case, but with sinners it is. And so perhaps it was a group of Hellenized Jews, that is Greek-cultured Jews of the diaspora, as indicated by the different country names. So remember, the Jews have been dispersed many times throughout history. Uh, you know, Assyria, 
722 B.C., Babylon in the you know, 600, 500s B.C., and then, and then beyond that. So there's Jews all over the known world, the Mediterranean, and then some uh, come and you know, create this synagogue called the Synagogue of the Freedmen. There were not a lot of nationalities involved. Uh, there were Cyrenians from Cyrene or Cyrene, a city of Libya on the northeast Mediterranean coast. That actually is not very far from where that flooding was just recently. I think that's in the same quadrant of um, uh, Libya, if I'm thinking correctly about my geography, as what we saw today in the news recently. Um, Acts 11.20 mentions men of Cyrene who were believers that shared the gospel with Greek-speaking Jews. There were Alexandrians. Who are they? Do you know where they were from? What nation? That's right, Egypt. Yeah, Alexandria and Egypt, a city of great culture and education, a huge Ann Arbor of its day. Uh, also a coastal city. There were Cilicians, where Paul was from. Acts 21, Paul was from Cilicia in the northeast corner of the Mediterranean Sea. And then there were Asians, Okay, not Asians like we think of Asians, but Asians from modern-day Turkey, okay, not from China or, or the Philippines or wherever, okay, but from Asia, from, from Turkey. Freedmen were, was a category of person who had been enslaved or were children of former slaves, but now were not enslaved. They would have a certain social standing, different than uh, those around them who had never been slaves, and now they were free. Uh, these Jewish people may have been of families that were enslaved by the Romans when Jerusalem was conquered years earlier um, and had been set, set free along the way. Uh, they may also have had a different language, um, but also general cultural differences in the sense of their societal status as freed people. Now, their beliefs were somehow connected with Moses and with God, with the law and with the temple. You see those concerns in what they accused Stephen of saying. Okay, and teaching. But the evidence shows us that they really didn't believe in God because they didn't think twice about lying, about conspiring to get people to lie about Stephen. They did not love their neighbors as themselves. If they professed to believe the law, then they would have believed that. Uh, Leviticus 19, 18 tells us this. It says, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And then in the, one of the last books in the Old Testament, in Zechariah chapter 8, verse number 17, the scripture says, Let none of you think evil in your heart against your neighbor. Let none of you think evil in your heart against your neighbor. Well, these guys, I can say with great confidence, they did think evil in their hearts against Stephen. They seized him, though they did not have the authority to do so. They put up false witnesses against him. They were not truly God-fearers, much less saved Jews by any stretch of anyone's imagination. They were unable to overcome Stephen in his debate because of the wisdom and the Holy Spirit that he possessed. I mean, it's, 
it's tough for, for a Jewish person who doesn't know the New Testament and perhaps doesn't even know his own Bible, his own Hebrew Bible too much, to deal with a well-informed Christian who knows the Bible inside and out. You know, who when he says something about, oh, well, the Messiah wasn't supposed to, to, to die and suffer, and, and the guy turns around and said, yeah, well, why don't you read Isaiah 53 and tell me what it says there? Oh, it says that he was going to be cut off for the sins of his people. What about Daniel chapter 9? You know, the Messiah will be cut off. What does that mean? That means he's going to be killed. Your Bible says it right there. What about, uh, he's, you know, the Jewish person says, well, what about this idea that he's a priest? Well, God said in Psalm 110, I've declared the decree, you know, I'm making you a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Not the Levitical order, but the Melchizedekian order and so on and so forth. There's answers to all those objections to somebody who's a Jewish person who's, who really wants to know what's going on with his, with his portion of Scripture. Um, now, let me just comment briefly. There's this idea of some people like debates and having official you know, debates with format and timed and all that stuff. And I would say they have limited value if they're done well. We have a few de- examples of debates or disputes in the New Testament. Paul and Athens, remember, going back and forth with the uh, philosophers there. Stephen here in Acts chapter 7. The proclamation of the message of the gospel is what God has uh, arranged for us to do. Sometimes that can occur in a setting like what Stephen is in, but oftentimes when you're in that kind of setting, there's so much error mixed in with the truth, that what I call the truth density of the debate is very low. I mean, if, if it's a debate between a Christian and a Muslim, and they each get 50% of the time, then 50% of the time is not true, right? But if you have a, a pastor in a setting like this where he can give a monologue from the text of Scripture, then you have full truth, 100% going out, if he's being faithful, okay, obviously. We trust and hope that's the case. So we don't, wanna, we don't necessarily find that a debate is the most useful avenue for truth to be conveyed. But in any case, apparently, back to these synagogue folks, they're concerned about losing their influence to this upstart sect in town, The Way, which was growing quickly to influence thousands of people. Perhaps many of their own people were leaving the synagogue because they found the doctrine of the Christians convincing. I also have to wonder, did these freedmen of the synagogue have anything better to do with their time than to stir up trouble, get people to lie, and get people killed? Don't they have anything better to do, more productive? Um, You know, did they really believe... Here's the accusations that are, that are laid out against Stephen. Did they really believe that Jesus was going to come and destroy the temple that Herod built? Did they really believe that? This is reminiscent of the interaction between Jesus and some Jews in John 2, 18 to 22, and brought up again at his trial. You remember what that was in John 2? Jesus said, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. Who did, he tell, who did he say was going to destroy the temple? Them. You destroy it. 
then I will raise it up. Here they're saying, Jesus is going to destroy the temple. You see how they've twisted? They've taken the plain statements, and I've had this happen so many times, even with Christians. They're saying, you said, I didn't say that. Listen to what I said. You've jumped to a conclusion, okay? You have jumped to a conclusion. You feel, for example, that I'm uh, being hard against you or I'm, I'm you know, uh, convicting you. That's no, not me. Guess who it is? <laughs> yeah, the, the, the Spirit of God's doing that and, and, and they're getting upset and their consciences are bothering them. And uh, so, but it's so ridiculous for them to think that Jesus really is going to come back and destroy the temple. He'd already been there. They thought, we killed that guy. We buried him. He's done. How would they think that he's going to destroy the temple? But this had been somewhat of a, oh, by the way, If somebody says something that you think is crazy, like Jesus is going to come and destroy the temple, if you're on their side, why don't you just take it as if it's the words of a madman and just go on with your life? Don't get all upset about it and kill the guy because he's a a raving lunatic. Now, Stephen was not a raving lunatic, but they could have easily said, look, this guy's nuts. (laughs) Let's forget him. But they had to go down this whole path of, charging him with blasphemy and all of that. And you know, it had been a somewhat a successful method of prosecution, or should I say persecution, against Jesus, right? Lie about what he said, you know, and going to destroy the temple and blah, blah, blah. And here they are trying the same technique again. That's, that shows the pattern. They didn't just do it once, they did it twice. And both of the guys they did it to got killed, Jesus and Stephen. Okay? So this wasn't a flash in the pan, a little accident that they had in their thinking. This was their, their MO, their modus operandi. This is how they lived. So here are the charges. They charged with three things. Blasphemous words against Moses and God. Blasphemous words against the temple and the law. And thirdly, Jesus of Nazareth would destroy the temple and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. So the charge about Jesus destroying the temple, we've already gone over that. That's ridiculous. The charge is wrong, first, because Jesus told the Jews to destroy the temple, and he would raise it up. These synagogue guys, or the, or the uh, leaders, misunderstood him to say that Jesus would destroy the temple. But in fact, he did not say that. Secondly, they misunderstood because he was talking not, only, not about the temple of Herod at all. He was talking about the temple of his body. So they have a charge against uh, Stephen that's twice corrupted. They got the subject of the destruction wrong, and they got the object of the destruction wrong. Jesus was not going to destroy the temple, and the temple was his body, not the actual building that they were thinking of. So they have this twisted-up version of reality. And third, the council believes that Jesus is dead and his body's been stolen away. So how would they be concerned that Jesus is coming back to destroy the temple? didn't make any sense. Now, their charge, uh, their, their last charge about changing the customs, it does have some truth to it, right? Jesus came and he was going to fulfill the law and make it so that they wouldn't offer the sacrifices and stuff like that anymore, you know, 
it would be done. But it was undoubtedly presented as a wholesale change. You know, Jesus comes and, and he's just going to change everything, willy-nilly, with no regard for the continuity between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, nor any reasons for the change. They just jump to, oh, it's going to be different now. These freedmen offered nothing like the sophistication of the analysis in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews takes us from the Old Testament into the New Testament and explains about the change of the law, the change of the priesthood, the uh, you know, put, leaving behind the sacrifices, the, the superiority of Jesus to the angels, to Moses, and all of that. They didn't have that kind of sophistication. Any change at all was bad in their view. So these charges give us something of the idea of Stephen's preaching, misunderstood though it was. They charged him for speaking Christianity. Moses, he taught that Jesus was greater than Moses, most certainly. Well, they didn't like that because Moses was the guy. He talked about God. Stephen, they said, spoke against God. Probably they thought that because he elevated Jesus to the level of worship because he said Jesus is God. So making the Messiah and Lord equal to the Father to them was an attack on the monotheistic doctrine that they held. Uh, he spoke, Stephen spoke about the temple. He, you know, he believed that the temple ritual did not and could not provide salvation. There was one final sacrifice done by Jesus, he taught, now, this is, there's a little bit of an interesting thing here. You remember Paul did participate in the rituals of the temple later on in Acts. So it's not that that stuff had to immediately stop and be you know, finished completely. Even Paul participated in it. And we know that there will be uh, sacrifices that will come back in the millennial kingdom. Okay? Ezekiel 40 to 48 tells us that. So it's not that they're entirely wrong, but... It's not that animal sacrifices are totally in violation of the work of Christ, but the understanding, the misunderstanding that the Jews had, that animal sacrifices were the thing that would save us, that was the issue. Animal sacrifices never justified anyone. Let me say that again. Animal sacrifices never, in any age, justified anybody. Not in the Old Testament, not in the New Testament, not before, uh, during the, you know, uh, 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 Noah, not before Noah, not after Noah, not before Moses, not after Moses, not before Jesus, not after Jesus. Never did an animal sacrifice justify anyone. Why? Because a man is only justified by faith in God in any age. Old Testament, New Testament, future, past, whatever. Salvation is by faith, not animal sacrifice. Never, never, never. That's why people say, what do you mean the animal sacrifices are going to come back? We can't be, we, we never were justified by them. Them coming back has nothing to do with us being justified, okay? Whether they're used as a memorial or they're used as a, 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 a kind of a, way to get right with the government, the theocracy, whatever it is, that's another topic for another time. But the faithful Jew of the Old Testament era knew that animal sacrifices didn't save anybody. 
And so it would be no problem for him to say, oh, God was using those animal sacrifices to point us to the ultimate lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world and that would be the final sacrifice and we don't have to make any more sacrifices because in those sacrifices, Hebrews argues, is a remembrance made of sin every year over and over and over again because they never cease to be offered. Here, this is one sacrifice for all, for all time, done, finished. What a different thing. Of course the customs were going to change because there was a new thing. A new thing had happened. A fulfillment had occurred. Then he talked about, Stephen did, talked about the law. His speaking against the law may have been their interpretation of his speaking of the insufficiency of the Mosaic law to save. I'd have no problem saying, look guys, the law never saved anybody. The law was given to point out sin, right? schoolmaster, okay, brought us to the point of adoption as sons, and so on. If somebody attacks me for that, let them, let them attack away, because that's the truth. The law never saved anybody, okay? Not saying the law was bad. Paul says that. Was the law sin? No, it wasn't sin. It pointed out sin. It was fine as far as it went, but it didn't have any power to save anybody. So if that's speaking against the law, so be it. We'll see Stephen's extensive message in chapter 7, and that'll give us a little more clue about what he was teaching and how he got into such trouble with them. But they couldn't deal with the wisdom that Stephen had, nor with the Spirit of God who dwelt in him. He was a tough debate opponent. So what happened when words would not work in response to Stephen, they turned to whatever means they could to silence him. That too is a common technique today, isn't it? Can't deal with it, shut him up. Now, in verse 15, it seems to me that Stephen did not seem to be scared. It, it says, And all who sat in the council looking steadfastly at him saw his face as the face of an angel. To, remember what the Lord said when they haul you up before these uh, councils? Don't worry about what you're going to say. The Spirit of God will give you the words to say at that time. Don't be anxious about what you're going to talk, how you're going to talk. To the contrary... Stephen was glowing, kind of, you know, kind of radiating. I don't know how it looked, but peaceful, just there. He probably had a premonition of what was going to be happening. God gave some extraordinary appearance to Stephen so that it would be even more evident that he was a messenger of God. Sadly, he was delivered to death by his own brothers, his Jewish brothers, and they thought they were doing God a service by doing that. But he gave a good testimony, as we'll see in chapter 7. And boy, a very tough one, Uh, very straightforward, very convicting. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Stephen's example and, and how it encourages us that with him and with us too, if we speak the truth, our words can be twisted and contorted around to mean what they don't mean by the mind of the unbeliever. Lord, I pray that you would uh, help us to be steadfast and to be calm in the face of persecution if it does come our way, but help us to continue to preach the truth, come what false accusations may. Strengthen us for that and and, uh, thank you for the example of, of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. In Jesus' name, amen.